welcome to the Queer Arabs podcast. I'm Nadia. And this is Ellie. And we have an awesome guest with us today. Can you introduce yourself? Hi, I'm uh, Barak Zaid, and I'm so happy and grateful to be here. Yeah, we're really excited to have you here. Uh, can you tell people a little bit about um, you as a person and also your work? Absolutely. Uh, so I'm uh, a writer and as an artist, I work primarily through my writing. I'm part of a art collective. Um, we were uh, a group of friends who had been working together on various projects sort of independently. We decided to kind of join our forces and make something really um, fantastic and wonderful together. So that art collective GCC we founded in 2013 and we work across mediums, but my my personal primary medium is writing. I've done curating, I've done um, art writing, but my primary work right now is um, on a memoir and a speculative fiction, climate fiction novel. I also am really invested in community and building community around all of those different things. Yeah, and I want to get into um, both of the projects that you mentioned, uh, but first I want to talk a little bit about um, building a community around writing. Uh, when you mentioned that in some of our intro emails, I was, I was interested in that because as somebody who's kind of a writer, but isn't a writer that much because of how lonely and staring at your own screen it can be, um, I was wondering what's been the process of uh, bringing people together there. Yeah, it came out of that same need of feeling really isolated and lonely and alone in this artistic pro process that's really kind of gut-wrenching, especially when you're doing personal essay or memoir. Uh, it, you know, there's aspects of the process that bring you into contact with other people. So if you're workshopping writing or if you're interviewing people, those are all really great ways to feel a sense of connection. But um, it wasn't enough for me. I find it really difficult to plop one sentence in front of the other. Um, I don't really write in a linear way. And so uh, it's been really important for me, um, having lived in Thailand for the past five years and now recently moving to Frankfurt to have both in-person and virtual uh, communities and gatherings of writers, whether we're working on our own stuff, whether we're teaching each other skills and kind of amplifying our own craft uh, or, um, you know, co-creating work, which is that idea of co-creating a piece of writing is something new that I've been developing and experimenting with. Yeah, so. uh, how's that going? Like, what, what are you co-creating? You know, I'm interested in this conversation, this broader conversation about, uh, decolonizing the MFA and decolonize, I don't have an MFA, but I'm interested in the ways in which um, people are having conversations about decolonizing institutions um, of writing and publishing. And uh, I have not seen um, anyone really go back uh, super far into the writing or early in the writing process. So what, am I, what I mean is people are talking about who is at the helm of publishing houses? Who are the editors? Um, what stories are we telling? Whose stories are we able to tell? And then recently we've had uh, craft books 
um, by two incredible writers, um, Felicia Rose Chavez and Matthew Salesas, who really interrogate the workshop model and how to um, be in dialogue with other people and be in community with other people about the work. Uh, but my background um, and uh, a, a lot of my training has been in theater and performance. And I feel like we can even go earlier on in the process to add that level of collaboration, that level of dialogue um, to co-create a piece of writing. And I can talk a little bit more about what I've been doing, but- um, If you want to, go for it. Yeah. Actually, yeah, so- um, Yeah, go for it. How did you, what is the GCSD and how did you meet up with them? <laughs> yeah, speaking of collaboration, we, um, we're we an art collective and um, we're all from the Arabian Gulf countries. Some of us are half, you know, Kuwaiti or half Bahraini and half something else. Uh, we all had this collective experience of growing up in the 80s and the 90s in the Gulf and experiencing the aesthetics and the, um, the way in which uh, power and government kind of deployed its aesthetics uh, in order to assert control or to assert norms and things like that. And so uh, we're really attracted to the ways in which, um, you know, the visual language of the Arabian Gulf countries uh, can be taken on and uh, kind of repackaged. So in a lot of ways, we're like subverting or queering or um, reorienting that um, that visual language. Oh, and what does GCC stand for, just for the people who want to look it up? Um, you can just search GCC Art Collective. It doesn't stand for anything, and that was kind oh. of the appeal. So we're, in a way, we're, our work is sometimes the simulacrum of the actual GCC. So we embody different protocols that they do. We go on summits. And so um, we inhabit the Gulf Cooperation Council's um, modes of, of being in the, the social, the governmental, bureaucratic, you know, dusty carpets and air conditions amped up the... So for us, that ambiguity of GCC doesn't really stand for anything for us. It's more of like an image or an icon. Oh, so you're like collective. No. <laughs> yeah, you know, a lot of different things, I guess, could be filled in for that. So basically, subverting this very stuffy, very autocratic group who exist for the money and for the for their own aesthetics sounds like fun. It is a lot of fun. And actually, it's really a, a joyful experience to work with these people. We're family, you know, so we fight and we kiki, we travel together and um, create work together. It's part of the part of the joy of the work is the work itself. We know we're hitting on an idea when there's a lot of laughter in the room. We know like this is a through line that we need to pursue when there's a lot of overlapping chatter and excitement. And so that's um, that's something that I love and like really was craving to find a way to put into my writing. So one part community, one part um, a revision process group, right? For GCC, uh, our art is primarily visual. Um, so I don't know if it, I don't know if we go in the direction of revision. 
Maybe you can maybe you can tell me what you mean by that. Oh, I meant for like writing, like I because I know with writing, uh, being going back through, reviewing, uh, revising, and then especially for fiction, if you have to make any structural changes to go back to the story, just can be maddening because you're like, how many times do I have to rewrite this paragraph or account for this thing I've I've changed in the story? Yeah, as a collective, we we do work together to produce a thing so we'll mm-hmm. we'll work together to produce like this phone or this notebook it's not like um other collectives maybe that um i'll bring in individual works works or anything like that so we're kind of thwarting the idea of a, a solo artist and we do when we are working on texts whether it's like our own um text for a work like we'll do scripts and things like that it's all very collaborative we're very consensus driven yeah I, I thought it was interesting when you were saying that your background is in um, theater and performance and that kind of led you there um I'm a dancer choreographer and I feel like there's a sense in contemporary dance which is also like overlapping with like experimental theater devised theater of like collectively made work except that I think in a lot of, especially like white dominated scenes, it's, it hasn't fixed the part of who gets credit or who gets um, paid for things. Uh, so it's almost like worse. It's like, there's this one white guy whose name is gonna be on this thing, who's gonna get paid the most for this thing, but everybody in the company has like made it together. Um, so yeah, that's interesting how, you, you kind of have to make it yourself for that to actually be a decolonizing process instead of just a, a different um, spin on exploitation. Exactly. It's it's about like reconfiguring every aspect of that. Um, and I think, um, yeah, so I think those aspects of GCC and the way that we collaborate and the way that we made art together was really inspiring to me as I shifted into a solo writing practice. Um, so these two things are happening in parallel, right? I'm I'm working on a memoir that's my own work and dreaming up this um, speculative fiction novel while also producing work um, with my art collective. And I, I, rem- I remember we were speaking about joy earlier, the joy of making art and collaborating with people. And I remember just, you know, being in amidst the writing process and like deep in it at one point, it's just, it's just hard. And my partner came in and they were like, does anything about this make you happy? <laughs> and I was like, no, it's miserable. And you know what? It's okay because all these famous writers talk about how miserable writing is for them. And that's, you know, and I was, and the, but that got me thinking and, and thinking about there are, ways of making art that bring me joy that I've experienced joy in theater making is one of them uh performing is one of them uh working my art collective is one of them and I was like what is the common thread oh I'm doing stuff with people to make a thing that we all really care about and so I I started being more intentional about uh leading workshops and bringing people together uh where we were living in Chiang Mai uh, to form a, a creative community where we could develop our craft together. But then I was also thinking about why can't we go earlier in the process? Like, why can't we literally co-create and collaborate on making a work? 
And there are seeds of this in my memoir. I I do involve uh I do involve my partner and my cousin, who are two very important characters in the memoir, uh in the process of of um, how they are both depicted. So my partner is non-binary. When I met them, uh, they had different pronouns and now they use they, them. And so I asked them, oh, can I use your old pronouns in the book? And they were like, no. And I was like, cool, that's great. Uh, it's not super important to the narrative and it's really important to them. And so I think that that's, like, I don't even see that as a compromise. That's, that's, me making an intervention into how we write our queer lives into existence. Uh, and then with my cousin, my cousin um, is a trans man and uh, was assigned female at birth and in Kuwaiti society had a very particular experience being raised um, in that way. And it's really important for the way that I tell the story I also had a conversation with myself first where I said, okay, um, if my cousin is not okay with being depicted in this way, I simply cannot depict this aspect of the story and I need to rewrite a big chunk of this text uh, because there's no way for me to, to deal with that in an, in an ethical way because they're still like one of my favorite people in the world and I fully respect them. And I had a conversation uh, with him and he was like, yeah, Use, you know, use my dead name, use my old pronouns. Like this story is really important. We all suffered a great deal and it's just astounding that we survived. Um, writers of any genre often are so attached to their own ideas. It's my idea, I'm making this thing and I'm putting it out into the world. And I think that that's the, that's the first site of, of interrogation that we need to make whenever we involve other people's voices or stories, we need to uh, be thinking a bit more deeply and a, a little less selfishly about that. Uh, it would definitely would have been hard if my cousin had been like, no, I don't want to be depicted in this way. It would have changed the story, but it's the story that I'm telling is a memoir about myself and my experience. Mm -hmm. He's a really important character in that. Um, yeah. Yeah, I was just gonna say, I'm, I'm glad you brought that up because that's something I've wondered a lot about like with personal narratives in general and consent from the characters. And I feel like the general consensus is like, I don't know, whenever I've brought that up, it's like, no, but it's your story and it has other characters in it and people can deal. And well, that's that's one way of thinking, that's a legally correct way of thinking about it. But I don't know if it's like the best way ever <laughs> that we can think about it. <laughs> Totally. I think it all depends on what story you're writing and your relationship to those people. For sure, if you're writing a story about abuse and an experience of abuse, that is your story to tell and how you engage with those people is how you engage with those people. Um, what I have what I have read about, um, you know, about personal essay and memoir writing is it's not the act of writing itself is not necessarily cathartic the catharsis and the healing that you do has to happen prior to actually crafting the work on the page mm -hmm. and I think that's really been the case for me especially because a, a really important 
story that I tell is is the breaking apart and the healing of my relationship with my mom. And so that's that's something that um, we needed to go through the full like cycle of the relationship in order for me to be able to tell that story. And I, you know, I depict her in ways that are not flattering um, and not, you know, it's I, I do try to to craft a whole um, character for her. Uh, and she knows it's a it's a representation of a particular moment in time, and she's really transformed herself, and she's incredible in the way that she's become an, not just an ally but a, an advocate for me and my partner. Whereas I I would don't know if I would necessarily dream of talking to my dad. I'm still in the revision stage with this memoir, although I've I've published excerpts of it and put work out into the world, uh, and. Uh, it's been really great to see how it lands with people and how it resonates. But I still, my mom is is has suggested that she would mediate a conversation with my dad, but it's always been really one-sided and difficult. And I do try to show how he was to me when I was a child, which was very special and joyful. And hopefully that gives enough of context to understand the cruelty that I experienced later on in life. Yeah, I mean, to take a couple steps back, you wanna talk about like your decision to write a memoir, um, given like all that personal work that has to happen to do it in a way that um, makes sense for you. Yeah, I always had this urgency to tell my story and a lot of it had to do with this legacy of intergenerational trauma that I inherited. So my uh, my mom was estranged from her family for almost a decade uh, before they reconnected. This was in be between the early 80s um, through the first Gulf War in 1990. And that that is a story that I that I go into a little bit in the memoir. Uh, but it's interesting to me because I grew up with the expectation that I would be accepted no matter what. Because I was accepted no matter what. I was this like kind of girly boy who had, um, you know, most of, most of my friends were my girl cousins. And I like to play with everything. I like to dance, I like to sing um, and, I was always really kind of embraced and um, and welcomed. Also, as somebody who was half Kuwaiti, half American, growing up in Kuwait, uh, there was a certain amount of privilege and kind of slipperiness that was there too. Being a cis male um, also had a lot of privilege there. And so I I knew that about my own personal experience growing up, up until adolescence. And I also knew my parents' story of estrangement and understood that for them, family was the most important thing. And that was something that they reiterated. And it was, you know, they, they, that's what they said and that's what they did. And so I really believed, even though, I really believed that I would be accepted, even though the society around me and the religious um, kind of teachings around me were very homophobic, very uh, heteronormative, very misogynistic, 
uh, very patriarchal. I was like, oh, within our family, we're special, we're different. Uh, but that came to not be the case. And that's, I think that's an aspect of the story that feels really compelling to share. Yeah. Um, and then what was, where'd you go from there being like, I know I want to tell my story. And then how did you kind of get started in this process? I, I just started taking notes and started putting these stories down. And I've been, I've been writing, I've been writing it in some way or another for uh, like 10 years. There's, there's a, there's a, a thread or a chapter, part of a chapter that I wrote back in 2006. It's like a little nugget of an experience that I had with my um, Kuwaiti grandmother with Mama Atlifa, where she applies henna on my hands when I'm five years old. And that was, I think, the most incredible moment of liberation that I have ever, or maybe will ever experience this matriarch of a whole family. Yeah. Uh, fully seeing me, fully uh, embracing me and supporting me. And I felt with seeing other people around me who hadn't had that experience and also continued to be subjugated and, and oppressed within our Arab Muslim society, I was like, there needs to be more, uh, there just needs to be more of our stories out there. And there's so much, there's so much nuance, but there's also so much room for acceptance. Mm -hmm. And there's so much room for acceptance within Islam, within Kuwaiti society, within Arab society, uh, within our, you know, heteronormative upbringings, like as, you know, children of, um, of um, cis straight parents. You know, there's so many ways in which uh, they, you know, all those different all those different actors, all those different people, those different systems can can bend a little bit in different ways. And I wanted to show where those places could be could be maneuvered, where we could bend those places. Yeah, I mean, what you're describing like in your earlier childhood, do you think that in addition to what you described, like some of the privilege and flexibility of like having a mixed background and uh, being a cis boy, um, do, do you think like there's also a little bit of like freedom we give to childhood because we don't take things as seriously, you know, like we're like, oh, children don't have sexuality, they're just playing and then you hit puberty and then things seem a little more real, even though kids, maybe, I don't know, children, they, they might not have sexual orientations yet, but they, they definitely have gender expressions and they definitely have a sense of self, but I think sometimes we just give a little more the not taking it seriously is the freedom. Totally, totally. And that's something that I really, I think was confused by as a kid of like, why can't I hang out with so-and-so girl cousin anymore? Um, why can't I wear hijab, like my favorite auntie, you know, it's just like things like that, that just didn't make sense because I had so enjoyed the freedom and possibility of, of early childhood and because I was permitted that as well, it didn't make sense that it had to stop because, you know, it's like kids are smart. They also see the 
the um, inconsistencies and hypocrisies of their parents and the adults around them. You know, I watched adults around me get drunk when we traveled and I watched adults around me like not do the religious things that I cared about, right? Like I might care about um, doing X, Y, and Z practice in my, in my Muslim faith as a kid, but I didn't see like so-and-so. And the art, the organizing, I guess, principle of all that was individual choice. It was like, we have these things and these are the ways in which we are, are taught, but we also have a choice. And it wasn't, you know, um, it wasn't so prescriptive until like you said, early adolescence, puberty, suddenly all of our bodies became super dangerous. Yeah. I, I even see it, like, I think it's in any society, like, I teach elementary schoolers and middle schoolers, and, like, the difference in how much, like, gender and sexual policing they do just to each other is, like, honestly, um, sad to see how much happens between those two ages. I'm gonna jump a little bit um, and talk about your other project you're working on, your speculative fiction, um, which, to start, uh, it's based on The Runner, right? Which yeah, the runner is kind of a seed, yeah. Okay, which is amazing. Everyone should go read it right now. Um, and I want you to maybe summarize it for everybody a little bit because there's just like so many interlapping themes in like such a short piece. I was like, wow, how do you get all this in there? Um, but I think I, the, the connection I was thinking about there is I feel like it's also a story about a character who thinks their privilege is gonna take them a little bit farther than it actually does, and then it runs out. Um, so yeah, uh, but you'll summarize it better than I can. So tell no, me. I think that's I think that's <laughs> I think that's great. That's fabulous. Uh, well, i I do these I do these little experiments, and this is the way that I I started my memoirs. It was started out as a series of short stories. So I I, I find these seeds, these little nuggets, and the nuggets become chapters, and the chapters became the memoir. Uh, but they all started out at these little anecdotes and stories. And it's similar with this speculative fiction project. Uh, so I had imagined something much bigger, but I wanted to test the idea out in the form of a short story. Mm -hmm. And what underlies the novel as a whole is this idea that we, we, by looking at Kuwaiti society and three generations of Kuwaiti society from pre-oil era to immediately post-oil era to the near plausible future, we can see that we have everything that we need to care for our environment, to care for each other, and in The Runner, I highlight some of, The Runner is set in the near future and it takes place on Green Island, uh, which is an actual physical space that was constructed uh, by the Kuwaiti architect, uh, Ghazi Sultan. And he created it as a civic space. He created it as a space for people to gather, to play, there's adult-sized playgrounds, there's an amphitheater, there's a lagoon, there's all this promise and possibility that he laid for us to come together as a society. And people used to 
used to use it. People took advantage of it, just like they they used to spend time uh, on the beach, on public beaches. But because of the massive amount of wealth and and it's uneven, even within Kuwaiti citizenship, but for the most part, Kuwaiti citizens are incredibly wealthy and have access to a lot of wealth and privilege. Um, as as they accumulated that, and especially after the Gulf War, it seemed like they turned their backs on the sea. They turned their backs on the practices of um, seafaring and merchant trading and pearl diving that were our heritage. As much as you know, oil <laughs> is our heritage. It's just much more convenient to just extract this the substance from the ground um, than to commit to the labor around those other practices. So, and in the wake of that, in the wake of that increased privilege, um, we also um, have as a society really um, exploited other people's labor. So I think the big, for me, it's really interesting to take this subject on because the big taboo, I think, is not so much talking about sex and gender and sexuality, it's talking about privilege and wealth and how we as a society are one of the smallest countries in the world and have one of the biggest footprints as far as um, our impact on the environment through the oil and gas industry, through our exports, through our participation in OPEC. And yeah, you know, me as an individual citizen or any given person as an individual citizen probably does not have much that they can do to sway that huge superstructure. But I think it's also important that we are able to uh, name that and claim it just as much as we claim the material wealth um, and do something about it and, and kind of interrogate those structures and those systems. And a lot of it, I think, what I tried to do in the particular story that was published by, um, uh, by Rusted Radishes um, through the Mudun competition, which was co-hosted with the Bergil Art Foundation, was to show in which the way in which in climate catastrophe, we're all fucked. And we need to learn to live together and to learn from each other and to be in solidarity with one another um, across class, across um, education level. And the protagonist or one of the protagonists in the story uh, as you said, is this privileged person who tries through his proximity to even more privileged people hold on to that until he realizes that aspects of his identity put him at greater risk. And that's 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 now, you know, the, like all the that's what fascinates me about speculative fiction. It's like the what if is not that far away. And in many cases, it's happening right now. Yeah, it's it's like I, I read and I thought like it's just a little bit of an extrapolation of now. Yeah. Yeah. And like you said, uh, the main character, well, I'm not going to spoil too much now. I'm thinking am I spoiling too much? <laughs> anyway, go read the story. Um, uh, so instead of me spoiling, um, do you want to talk a little bit more about uh, your plans to expand this work? Yeah. So it's similar to what we had been talking earlier about collaboration and writing. And I um, I was working on this grant and I knew that I wanted to apply it towards this project. 
And part of the grant is to dream big. And I was like, okay, I'll have this amazing social media campaign and reach all these people. But really, you know, because the goal, the goal of the work is to really touch people. I really want to connect with people and I want them to have an emotional connection to what's happening on the page so that they can transform themselves. But as we know in our digital era and this era of the echo chamber and um, talking, you know, talking um, to just like the same voices and hearing the same voices and these polarizations, you can't really convince somebody else by appealing to them directly, um, whether through a discussion or logic, even appeals to emotion it doesn't really work. We have to transform our relationships to each other. And I've seen that happen in an experience that happened in theater, in particular through device theater, theater of, which is based on theater of the oppressed, Augusto Bowal's um, uh, way of bringing audiences in and activating um, the everyday world as a theater scape for people um, who are the trained performance performers and the um, uh, spectators to participate in co-creating the work. And this is exciting to me. This is really dreamy because it takes it takes away from the solo author thing of like pounding the keyboard and pounding my head against the keyboard um, and allows me to uh, to workshop stuff with people so that we're uh, reading things together and performing things together that find their way into written form. How we go from device theater practices that are really fantastic into uh, the final novel form, I haven't figured that out yet. And I'm really excited to be in the process right now. It's very raw and elemental. Um, I did a few of these workshops while I was living in Chiang Mai with friends. And we were um, basing a lot of it on Robin Wall uh, Kimmerer's Braiding Sweetgrass. And she, she really transformed my idea of like how we need to change our relationship to the land and to the, to the earth. And these are some really foundational uh, ways of relating to the earth that I wanted to share with my friends. And by enacting these through theater exercises, we were able to perform a new relationship to the planet and to each other. And it changed their way of being in the world, which is fantastic. Obviously, these are people who are already receptive to the ideas, but they had changed themselves in ways that they hadn't considered before because of the workshops that we did. It also helped me understand some of the symbols, some of the rituals, some of the things that were important to them that maybe need to be included in the work. But right now I'm still figuring out, okay, how does that go into a novel? I don't know, but I think, I think it's worth exploring and, and experimenting with people and I wanna do more of that. Yeah, that's awesome. That's like not at all how I thought novels were made, so. Cool. No one's, I don't think anyone's done this before. There are some There are some writers who do build performance into their practice in the sense that um, they'll go and observe. You know, this is a very common practice that writers are told, go to a cafe and watch. But even that is like, that person did not consent for you to transcribe their conversation, you know? Um, and then there's there's an author who um, she will uh, she will get her friends and people in her world to uh, to agree to enact things, and then she will transcribe those things. But that's that's still like more 
that's still I don't know that much about her process. I just know that much about her process, but that still feels like not enough of a collaborative experiment to create something new. Um, yeah. Well, well, I'm excited to check out what results from that. Um, kind of going more generally, what kinds of responses have you gotten to your work like throughout your career um, and like in different places you've lived as well? That's a, that's a tough question to answer. Uh, I think when it comes to Or have you gotten like, responses that you know about? I guess you don't always know. Yeah. Maybe if people aren't giving act, really active feedback. With my art collective, people are very polarized. They either love what we do and understand it, or they feel like we're being overly critical or being uh, heavy-handed and one note, which is fine. Um, I don't really see that work as having a significant impact on the world and the way that the world operates. It's something that brings me and my collective members a lot of joy and it's our way of casting a mirror casting a lens casting both a mirror and a magnifying lens on the conditions that we grew up in and that feels really really important uh, and whoever receives it receives it and that's that's fine with my personal writing and uh the memoir and this uh novel I really want to affect change in people's lives. And I am writing this memoir for three people, for my younger self, for my mother, and for the cousin that I grew up with. And it's for my younger self as, as a way to try and travel back and, and just give that younger uh, Barack a hug and say like, you're fine, you're good, you'll make it through. And it's for my cousin in a way to say, we survived this. And he read a draft of it recently and he said he couldn't put it down that he, I mean, it's, look, it's still really messy. It's not the most fantastic clean draft that I handed over to him, but he finished it in two days and was like, there's a lot of work still, but this was, I couldn't put it down. It really resonated. And for me, that's, one of the biggest compliments that I've received about my work, I'm so nervous about both depicting him in a in a honest and respectful way, and also that the truth of our experience growing up in Kuwait, straddling both like serious privilege and serious oppression, uh, bullying, abuse, uh, is is really gratifying. It's also really gratifying that my mom loves my work because it's very honest and very sexual. And I have been nervous in the sense that like, oh, cringe, my mom's reading about me having sex, but also like I had sex, you know, and she had sex, lots of people have sex. And so it makes me happy that I can share that with her. And part of our journey together was deconstructing that wall of shame that stood between us because I identify as queer, identify as, um, you know, not heterosexual. <laughs> and when I came out to her, it was hard for her to even say the word gay. And now she's reading about me clicking through porn in the 90s. And I just, I love that. Like, I want that for everybody. Yeah. yeah. So I, I guess what I'm hearing is like, 
you have the responses that you care about and then the other ones are bonus. And yeah, yeah. yeah, and along the way, I, I keep hearing from members of my uh, my workshop group because I, I, in December of last year, I brought together a, um, a group of writers, um, some of whom I'd done, I've known through other virtual spaces, um, some of whom I didn't know at all, but I put out a call on um, an online community um, called Fairest Writers that was founded by Meredith Talusan. Um, and I just put out a call saying like, hey, does anybody wanna join a, a workshop group, a critique group for personal essay, book length, personal essay and memoir projects. And you know, we're gonna be anti-racist and um, inclusive and queer um, and BIPOC affirming but it'll be it'll be diverse, and from those people, from other people who've read my work, the stuff that's in progress and the stuff that's finished, it's just so encouraging to hear them say, "Keep going. This is important. People need to hear this story." Mm-hmm. It's so encouraging for them to say, in the sidebar comments, "Oh my gosh, this is my mom," or "Oh my gosh, this is my dad," and for them to be a white cis woman from the Midwest. And I'm talking about my very particular experience growing up in Kuwait um, to an American mom and a Kuwaiti dad. I guess those are the responses. And I think because it's a work in progress, it's, you know, that's, those are the things that I really hold on to. Yeah, I think that's, that's really important. Um, Okay, before we wrap up, I sometimes like to ask, artists, uh, what are some pieces of art? It could be writing or anything else that have inspired you that you want to shout out. I know it's also a hard question. Yeah. (laughs) Ooh, I think art that makes me feel first and then compels me through that feeling to think is the kind of art that I want to make. Mm -hmm. And the Several several authors do that to me. Um, people like Sarah Schulman, Randa Gerard, and N.K. Jemison, uh, and going back further, Octavia Butler. Uh, I also am really inspired by visual art and performance that is just able to evoke so much feeling, uh, and to do so through queer, especially queer valences. So. Um, uh, artists like Ryan Tricartin and the collective works that he makes, uh, Grayson Perry, and um, there's this one piece by an artist that I don't think many people know or have encountered. It's a sound piece called, called Long After Tonight by Matt Stokes. Long After Tonight by Matt Stokes, I saw it in Chicago and it just blew me away. Is so moving, so emotional. Um, other artists who, yeah, other artists who work with their bodies and and take on violence onto their own bodies, like Wafa Bilal. Um, Wafa Bilal is really inspiring to me because, as an Iraqi artist who went through um, multiple violent regimes in Iraq and managed to flee and survive and thrive. 
um, his work often takes on violence onto his own body. And uh, that's something that I'm really, um, that I'm really passionate about as well and really touched and moved by. Thank you. Um, so can you give people um, some places where they can follow you and keep up with your work? Totally. So I am uh, online at Barakstar. So that's B-A-R-R-A-K-S-T-A-R on Twitter and Instagram. Uh, my website is barakalzade.com. And I also uh, have been teaching courses on uh, uh, bringing the body into writing and bringing collaboration into writing. I just finished a summer retreat uh, that went so well. It was so exciting and so nerve wracking, um, but it was really wonderful to share some of the things that I'd learned with people and also learn from them. And I'm gonna be offering that again through an organization called Roots Wounds Words, uh, as well as uh, offering a retreat um, sometime in the winter. So you can, you can look out on my socials and on my website um, for information about all of that. Are these in-person workshops or online? All of it is virtual. Okay, cool. Yeah, yeah. Cool. All right, so you can follow us at the usual places, um, the Queer Arabs on Instagram and Twitter and Facebook, um, thequeerarabs.com. If you want to email us, we're thequeerarabs at gmail.com. And I think that's it. Yeah, <laughs> I'm not usually the person who does the outro. Um, thank you so much, y'all. Mm -hmm.